You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. this on? Yes, it sounds like it's on. Um, White Sands Red Menace, according to my publisher, uh, Viking, is a children's historical fiction book, but it's secretly a science fiction book um, because it's about 1946 and 47, which was the time in American history in which everything that had previously been science fiction started to be real. Uh, Rockets to the moon, the atomic bomb, um, microwave ovens, ballpoint pens, the little atomic fuel pellet that would run your car for a year on it for a nickel. See, you're all from the future and you know that one didn't happen. (laughs) Um, And I wrote it as a book for science fiction readers, um, even though it's, I I knew that that wasn't what my publisher's intended audience was because it's this really fascinating period in which technology and and ethics and everything is sort of catching up with America. Um, So it's like full of science fiction Easter eggs. And it's about the V-2 program and the first U.S. Uh, rockets and the aftermath of the atomic bomb and the beginning of the Cold War and some other typical children's book topics. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read you two chapters from the very beginning and then one chapter from the middle that will kind of give you a feel for it. Um, I'm going to start with the second chapter, which is called First Rocket. Um, this is, by the way, a sequel to Green Glass Sea, and if I should probably tell you that the two characters are two girls named Dewey and Suze um, whose parents were at Los Alamos building the bomb. And this is nine months later um, in Alamogordo, New Mexico, and the father is now working on the rocket program with Dr. Von Braun and others. First rocket. Low gray-green scrub bushes spotted the pale red desert on either side of the road. They drove into a large area where the sand had been rolled smooth and flat. There she is, Dr. Gordon said. He sounded as if the rocket were his own possession, the way he had yesterday when he'd driven home in the new car. He parked in front of a low fence, thin wire strung between posts. Suze stared. It had to be a joke. It was shaped like a rocket, all right. A tall cylinder with a pointed nose resting on four broad triangular fins, just like the ones in comic books. But those were silver, gleaming metal, shiny and space-looking. This one wasn't. It was painted like a checkerboard, huge black and taxicab yellow squares. Two fins were black, two were yellow, like Halloween from some cartoon planet. Why is it painted like that? She asked. High visibility. A few are black and white. The pattern so we can tell if it's spinning or rolling in flight. Come take a look. The fence surrounded a slab of concrete the size of a school playground. After the still emptiness of the desert, the launch site was a startling contrast. Jeeps and army green trucks with big white stars rumbled across the sand. Seuss figured there must be a hundred people, all men, about half in uniform, the rest in shirt sleeves and khaki pants, some of them stripped to the waist and sweating in the hot sun, yelling back and forth. Toss me the wrench! Tighten that sucker up! Where the hell is Ed? Everywhere she looked was a bustle of activity with the sounds of metal clanking and motors running. The air smelled like gas and oil and the ozone of hot wiring. Men with short-billed mechanics caps swarmed around the base of the rocket, carrying cables and wires, attaching hoses, looking at clipboards, talking into bulky black headsets. 
The V2 dwarfed them all. It was the biggest thing Suze had ever seen close up, taller than any building in New Mexico. How big is it? 46 feet, give or take an inch, and five feet in diameter. Dr. Gordon held his arms out wide. She weighs five tons empty. That must take a lot of gasoline, Dewey said, watching a shirtless man in army pants and a cap screw a nozzle into the side of a fuel truck. Dr. Gordon chuckled. Nope, not a drop. Germany didn't have much gas during the war, so she runs on moonshine. <laughs> they made it from potatoes. Eight tons of grain alcohol and liquid oxygen for about a minute of flight. A minute? That wasn't so exciting. That's not very long, Sue said out loud. Maybe not, but it's a start. At the end of that minute, she'll be 60 miles into space, 3,000 miles an hour once she gets going. Sue's watched Dewey's face wrinkle up. It did that when she was thinking hard. So with enough fuel, it could go from here to New York in what, 45 minutes? Dewey said slowly. Someday. For now, we just want her to go straight up. First man-made object ever to penetrate the upper atmosphere. Well, you're not counting all the Nazi ones, Sue said. <laughs> First ever, Dr. Gordon sounded proud again. The wartime missiles had a horizontal trajectory. They went up, crossed the water, came down. He made a shallow arc with his arm. This one's going into space. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sue scuffed her sneaker in the sand and stared up. New Mexico was mostly sky. The land was a flat brown plain edged with mountains in all directions. Everything else was a vast blue bowl. She wondered what was up there that was so important they weren't back home in Berkeley right now. Dad and Marm had argued about that for the last six months. All she saw were huge, motion motionless white clouds. If it's going that fast, Dewey said, it's going to get tiny pretty quick. We won't be able to see it. So how do you measure how high it goes? Well, there's a good question, Dr. Gordon patted her shoulder. Telescopes, Sue said. She moved a step closer to her father, but only got a smile, no pat. You're partly right, he said. The Germans didn't need that kind of tracking, so we're using good old American ingenuity. <laughs> kind of combination telescope and movie camera called a cinetheodolite. It's a work in progress. Well, hell, this is all a work in progress. But we've got a guy coming out from Harvard this summer who'll get it up to snuff. Clyde Tombaugh. He's the best there is. Dewey nodded. I'll say. He's the man who discovered Pluto. Uh, the planet, not the dog, she added, looking at Sue's. I knew that. Sue stuck out her tongue. Sometimes Dewey was such a pain. Stay here, Dr. Gordon said, then waved to a man in a white shirt who was gesturing at the base of the rocket. I gotta go find out what Jim wants. Sue's nodded, watching as half a dozen men scurried up the narrow metal ladders that canted into the side of the rocket. Two stood on a platform midway, opened a panel that was half yellow, half black, and began making adjustments to the tangled nest of wiring inside. A pipe down by the base hissed and vented steam. It looked very complicated. Uh, I'm skipping a bit. Um, men detached hoses and turned wheels and valves. Then the tanker truck rolled, rumbled slowly away from the rocket. Now Suze could see that the fins were marked with Roman numerals. Two and four visited from, visible from where she stood. Dr. Gordon looked at his watch. Right on time. X minus one hour, and they're done with the oxygen fueling. We've got 30 minutes before they clear the launch site. Let me show you around, introduce you to some of the guys. The first man frowned at Dr. Gordon. You brought your girls out here? He sounded surprised and like he didn't approve at all. Why not, Dr. Gordon replied. It's going to be their world soon enough. More Dewey's world than mine, Suze thought. 
Dewey asked everyone a lot of science questions and seemed to think that even hoses and spools of wire were the most interesting stuff in the world. Suze was wondering if anything exciting would ever happen when a loudspeaker blared. All personnel, proceed to safety areas. Repeat, all personnel, clear the launch site. See you after, Phil, said the man. I'm on impact watch for this one. Where does the rocket come down, Dewey asked. That's not my department, said Dr. Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what goes up? <laughs> the viewing stand was a section of desert marked off with rows of white flags. A curve of jagged mountains rose steeply behind them, close enough that Suze could see individual slabs of rock jutting up. To the east and south, the land was flat and wide and spread out forever, like a dust-filled ocean, fading to blue near the horizons. Close up, low, pale green plants with small yellow flowers were scattered underfoot. Dr. Gordon handed Suze the lunch sack. Go ahead, stand anywhere. Sit if you want. Just stay inside the white flags. Something's wrong! Dewey tugged on Dr. Gordon's arm, pointing back toward the launch site. A plume of red smoke rose from the top of the blockhouse. He looked down at his watch. Nope. That's just the standby signal. We're at X minus 20, 20 minutes to the launch. I'll be back after they fire the all clear. That'll be green smoke. Enjoy the show, kids. It's hot, said Suze as he drove away. She looked around at the small crowd, a dozen groups of men and one lady in a red dress and a white hat, then sat by some of the flowers. The glass bottles clinked inside the sack. Yeah, Dewey sat next to her. I'm glad it's only May and not July. Give me a root beer. Suze pulled the sweating brown bottle out by its neck. Crap, she said. Dad forgot hats, and he forgot the opener. She stared at the bottle top for a long minute. Did you bring your pocket knife? Dewey shook her head. Um, I used to be a Boy Scout, said the man standing to their left. He pulled a folded knife out of his pocket and tossed it underhand to Suze. Be prepared. <laughs> Thanks. She popped the tops off two bottles of root beer and looked at the sack. I'll trade you back, she said, handing him the knife in the third bottle deal. He took a long, slow swallow. Boy, does that hit the spot. He sat down a few feet away, legs crossed Indian style. I'm Frank. I'm with Popular Science. You two look a little young to be press. <laughs> I'm Suze. This is Dewey. My dad's a consultant for General Electric, Suze said. On the, what do you call them? She turned to Dewey. The graphite veins for the tail fins, Dewey supplied. They stick out into the hot part and either steer or keep something stable. I'm not quite sure which. She shrugged. I'm better with mechanics than I am with aeronautics. <laughs> you are, are you? Frank smiled. So you're an engineer? Not yet, but I'm working on it. She took a drink and burped softly. Suze giggled. Sorry, Dewey said. Bubbles. Is this going to be in your magazine? Yep, July issue. He fished in the pocket of his pants, found a small white card, and wrote something on the back. Here, mail this to the magazine office with your address, and they'll send you one. He paused. Ah, what the heck? You can have a whole year. He scribbled more words and handed the card to Dewey. <laughs> really? Dewey stared. You mean it? Yeah, sure. My contribution to science. <laughs> it looks really tiny from back here, Sue said. She held her arm out and squinted, pinching the yellow rocket between her thumb and her forefinger. It looks like a toy. Don't let the Brits hear you say that. Frank tipped his head to the right, indicating four men in shirts and ties, jackets draped over their arms. They lost 3,000 people and a big chunk of London to those things. Back when Herr von Braun worked for the other side, he said the name as if it tasted bad. A loud murmur began like wind rustling through a cornfield and people pointed to the sky. 
Susan looked up and saw a bright red flare explode 100 feet above them. Fireworks in the daytime. Two-minute warning, Frank said, so if you'll excuse me, I think I should get back to work. He tipped his hat, a battered gray fedora, and stood up. Susan leaned back on her hands and stared at the faraway rocket, its base shimmering in the desert heat like a mirage. None of this felt real, more like a Buck Rogers serial at the movies. The loudspeaker mounted on a tall pole broadcast a man's tinny voice, excited but controlled. Ten. Nine. Eight. Suze waited. Two. One. Zero. Rocket away! For a fraction of a second, nothing seemed to happen. Then she heard a crackling sound like logs in a fireplace and saw yellow flame appear at the base of the rocket, followed by a huge, huge poof of horizontal fire and billowing clouds of dust. The rocket rose slowly into the air like a balloon floating gently upward. The crackling noise became a roar that grew and grew until it filled the world with sound, and the rocket gained speed and height. A bright white plume, straight as narrow and wide as the rocket, formed an immense tail. It flew up and up, impossibly fast, and within seconds there was no rocket, just a brilliant white streak in the sky like a smear of pure sunlight. Everything was silent, so quiet Suze could hear the leather soles of people's shoes scraping on the sand as they shifted to lean back and follow the light. A minute later, a corkscrew of white clouds appeared high in the sky, roiling and curling in on itself to form a loop that looked to Suze like the head of a dragon, its tail trailing away behind it. It isn't flying straight. Is something wrong? Dewey whispered to Frank. I don't think so, he whispered back. At the press briefing, they said the winds in the upper atmosphere might play havoc with the vapor trail. Oh. Suze watched, open-mouthed, as the curling dragon whisked and began to unform. Then nothing. Nothing at all for a minute. Two. No one spoke. Every head was tilted back toward the sky, waiting. Frank had stopped writing. Where does the rocket land, Suze asked. It doesn't, he said. It crashes. That's what it was designed to do, to make a big hole, as much destruction as possible when it hits. Dewey frowned. But there's no explosives on this one, right? Just cameras and stuff? Doesn't matter. There'll still be a little fuel left, and five tons of hit metal hitting the ground at 3,000 miles an hour is going to make one hell of a... Excuse me, ladies. One heck of a bang. <laughs> As if to prove his point, a few seconds later, the mountains reverberated with the sound and shock of a distant explosion. Off to the east, a narrow cloud of grayish-pink smoke rose from an invisible crater. A cheer went up and sped through the crowd. All around her, Sue saw men flinging their hats into the air, shouting as if they'd just won a football game. Go ahead, Uncle Joe, bring on the next war, a man in a white T-shirt yelled. We put A-bombs on a couple hundred of those babies at commies will never know what hit them. Got that right, another man laughed. We got everything we need now. Frank shook his head and looked over at Dewey and Suze. Welcome to the future, he said. <laughs> and this is a, a brief part from a chapter in the middle of the book. Um, Suze is going out for um, a drive in the evening with her dad. Um, where am I going to start this? They stopped at Walker's Walk-In and got ice cream cones. Strawberry for Dad and mint chip for Suze. She had to lick quickly to keep it from melting. Even after dinner, it was almost 90 degrees outside. This is uh, August. Her father turned left on the highway, one hand on the wheel, one hand holding his cone. After they passed the city limits, they were the only car on the road. The sky was a hundred shades of blue, studded with clouds that hung miles against above the desert floor, their tops glowing a warm, luminous peach, like whipped cream lit from within. 
Dr. Gordon put on his sunglasses and Sue squinted as they drove straight into the setting sun, an inch or two above the mountains to the west. She watched her father without turning her head or staring, not wanting him to know. He had lines around his eyes and mouth that she'd never noticed before, and his hair was going gray on the sides. He was very tan, brick red from being out in the desert all day. When he shifted his arm, his short shirt sleeve rode up a bit, exposing pale white freckled flesh, the division between light and dark as straight as a ruler. He drummed his fingers on the steering wheel once his ice cream was gone, keeping time to some music only he could hear. Off to the south, massive thunderheads purpled the sky, and Sue saw a faraway sheet of rain spread from cloud to ground, thin gray tendrils like pencil shadings smeared by a finger. I think I'd be used to this drive, her father said after a few miles, but it's never the same. It's my favorite part of the day, an hour of quiet after the chaos of the site he said, as if he commuted daily instead of sleeping out at the base half the time. The sun's behind me coming home. Easier to see what's out there. How about the mornings? They're gone before breakfast. Sleepyhead, he teased. It's still dark when I leave the house, and the desert's different at night. I've shared this road with tarantulas and owls, coyotes, rattlesnakes the size of your arm. When the sun comes up, the whole world changes. He turned toward her. Everything with any sense sleeps during the heat of the day, he said, except us. Mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the noonday sun, he sang in a robust voice. Her no-nonsense father was singing? Sue stared at him, her mouth open. He was so familiar, but tonight he felt like a stranger, <coughs> someone she was meeting for the first time. He saw her surprise and smiled. Noel coward. He wrote it about Borneo or Singapore, somewhere tropical, but it's just as true about New Mexico. Ah, here we are. He turned in through the wooden stone gates of the White Sands National Monument, 15 miles from town. On my way home from the base, I like to stop off here in the evening just to, well, you'll see. Outside the car windows, white dunes rose on either side of the narrow road. Swirls of powder eddied like mist across the pavement, and it seemed as if they'd driven from August into winter, a hot, dry winter. In the west, the Oregon Mountains were dark, jagged shapes silhouetted against the vivid sky. The sun was just barely above the tallest peak. Sue's watch the mountains seemed to slice into the blood-orange ball like a black dagger. This'll do, her father said. He pulled into a turnout. We don't have time to go much further. He got out of the car. Sue's followed him across the road and up the face of a steep dune 15 feet high, more vertical than horizontal. Climbing was easier than she'd thought. Her feet sank into the sand up to her ankles and small avalanches cascaded down behind her, but she made steady progress the dense white powder under her feet firm and squeaking a little with each step, not like beach sand at all. At the top, she reached down and pinched some between her fingers. She put it on her tongue, expecting salt and grit. It dissolved a bit, her teeth pulverizing it into a finer and finer powder, like peppermint or chalk, but it had no taste. What kind of sand is this? she asked. Sand's only a measurement. Particles larger than dust, smaller than pebbles. Well, to a metallurgist, anyway. Most of the sand in the world is ground-up quartz. This is gypsum. Feels like chalk. You're running an experiment, he chuckled. You're pretty close. Chalk's calcium carbonate and gypsum's calcium sulfide. They make plaster of Paris out of it. It's useful for an artistic type like you. Sue smiled, pleased that he had any idea what she knew, like what, that he knew what she liked to do. They crested another dune, and she gasped. As far as she could see in every direction, the land was a vast, rolling, pale pink bowls, the edges blade-sharp against the sky like the peaks of roofs, flattening as they approached. 
The windward sides were corrugated with endless symmetric ripples. It's beautiful, she whispered. She could see no sign of human civilization. Far distant mountains cupped the dunes in hazy crescents to the north and east. She felt like they were walking on another planet. Her father stopped at a flat place sheltered between two dunes and sat down. To their right, miles and miles away, a huge bank of clouds filled the horizon, rounded towers and crevices golden with sunlight. A Maxfield Parish painting come to life. Forbidden City, Shangri-La. Suze ached to go there. Behind and to her left, forks of jagged lightning lit up the darkening sky. She counted one one thousand, two one thousand, but even at twenty, no sound of thunder reached them. The light show continued. The world was silent. Close your eyes, Dad said. Just sit here and listen. At first she heard nothing at all. Then she noticed the soft whisper of the warm breeze in her ears, like listening to the inside of a seashell. She heard the sound of her own breath and small crunches as her father shifted his body a few feet away. A puff of wind, puff of wind with sand against the fabric of her shorts as much texture as sound, and not too far off a bird called, its tones round and low. Now open your eyes and look, her father said a minute later. Suze did and gasped again, startled by a feeling of weightlessness, of falling up or down, no way to tell, no distance, no detail, just the pale pink bowl of the dunes. Above her on all sides, another inverted bowl was tinted a deep, delicate blue, shading from pastels to ink. It's amazing, isn't it? He said softly. Suze couldn't speak. She nodded. Her father lit his pipe, the smoke sweet and sharp for a moment, then carried away into the desert air. When I was a kid, back in Pennsylvania, he said, I used to go out to the edge of the farm after supper and lie down in the grass and watch the sky like this. I'd imagine what it would be like to go there. I'd stare at the moon and think that someday in the future, a guy like just like me might visit that silver world, and I'd shiver even on a hot summer night. He spread his arms wide. See, this, this is where we are, where we've always been, but that, one arm swung up and pointed to the sky, that's where we could be. Oh, we know much as much about that world as a fish knows about dry land, but soon, oh, God, Susie, I can't wait to see what's up there. Seuss turned to see his face, and as if years and layers had suddenly been peeled away, she could imagine what Phil Gordon must have looked like when he was a boy, when he was her age. Why didn't you become an astronomer? That was my plan when I started college. Pause. But back then it was all observing, and I'm too much of a hands-on guy, I guess. I like experiments. I like making something happen, seeing a change. I stumbled into a medals class my sophomore year, and it was a better fit. You never told me that before. Well, you were, you were just a little kid when the war started, and then I got too busy, I guess. Everything on the hill was so important, and the, the bomb... His voice trailed off. After a moment, he relit his pipe and blew a stream of smoke up into the air. I came home from my trip last week and saw you in the kitchen talking to your mom. You're taller than she is, and I don't know when that happened. He reached out and found her hand, squeezed it. How you doing, new town and all? You settling in? You made any new friends? The question surprised her. It was just what she'd wanted her mother to ask the day before. Not so far, Sue said. Just Dewey. But you've got to see what we've built up in the attic. I'll give you a tour tomorrow as soon as you get home from work. I'd like that, he said slowly, but I'm going to have to take a rain check. Ten days or so. The last two launches didn't go well, and... Well, I'm going to be out at the base again for a while. Again? 
I'm sorry, hon. It's important. It's essential, really. It's just like the hill. Suze could hear the disappointment in her voice as the magic of the sand and the sunset in her dad's company faded into the reality of his day-to-day life. It's the same in a lot of ways, he said. We're in a race again. I mean, you wouldn't want the first man in space to be a Russian, would you? (laughs) I guess not, Suze said, although she didn't know what difference it would make. (laughs) But Mom says we have to be one world now or there's going to be another war. Your mother... (sighs) He started his voice tense, and then he paused and took a breath. Your mother and I disagree. Look, look back at history. Three, four, five thousand years, exploration and war have always gone hand in hand. It's human nature. It's inevitable. So we have to have the best weapons to defend ourselves. I mean, you're old enough to understand that, aren't you? Suze nodded and hugged her arms to her chest, not sure if she was cold on the outside. They sat in silence for a long time as the last wisps of color faded from the sky and the stars began to appear one by one. When they stood up to walk back to the car, all she could see was gray pale gray sand and blue-gray sky, like walking through a faded newspaper photo whose edges flickered with lightning. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>